This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. What is technology doing to us? How does it affect our ability to work, to be present, to connect to one another? Podcaster Aliyah Tavakolian wonders about these things all the time, and tech journalist Bob Sullivan has spent his life finding the answers. Their new podcast, So Bob, is your opportunity to ask, So Bob, how can I live a better digital life? Follow So Bob on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. In his international bestsellers, Guns, Germs, and Steel, and Collapse, Jared Diamond transformed our understanding of what makes civilizations rise and fall. Now in his third book in this monumental trilogy, he reveals how successful nations recover from crises while adopting selective changes, a coping mechanism more commonly associated with individuals recovering from personal crises. Adding a psychological dimension to the in-depth history, geography, biology, and anthropology that mark all of Diamond's books, Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis, reveals factors influencing how both whole nations and individual people can respond to big challenges. The result is a book epic in scope, but also his most personal book yet. And today, this Pulitzer-winning author and renowned polymath joins me on the podcast to reveal how the 12 predictors of how people handle personal crises can more or less translate to national and even global crises as well. Jared shares how he's dealt with some of his own personal crises and shares his personal observations and experiences from living in five of the six countries that he profiles in upheaval, including why you never utter the word Finlandization to an actual Finn, how Chileans in the 1960s never saw the warning signs that their democracy would fall to a bloody dictator, and why he fears this doesn't bode well for America. He discusses why some countries like Germany choose to acknowledge their violent past, while others like Indonesia choose to bury it, and how this comes back to haunt them in unexpected ways. Then he warns of two nations currently facing crises, Japan, which suffers from a crippling national debt and a population that's both aging and shrinking, but Jared Diamond says a little population decline might not be such a bad thing for Japan. America is currently in the midst of a crisis but may not even realize it, and he addresses four urgent problems facing the U.S., from the disintegration of civility and political compromise, to voting rights and voter registration, which he suggests should be automatic, just as in every other first world democracy. He says humanity remains in a horse race between hope and despair, but offers some positive signs that nations might be getting better at working together to solve the most pressing global issues. Plus, Jared answers a few of the most frequent questions that he receives from his millions of fans all over the world. Coming up with Jared Diamond in just a moment. Jared Diamond is a noted polymath and a professor of geography at UCLA. Among his many awards are the U.S. National Medal of Science, Japan's Cosmos Prize, a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, 
a Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction, and election to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. He is the author of the international bestsellers Guns, Germs, and Steel, Collapse, Why is Sex Fun, The World Until Yesterday, and The Third Chimpanzee. Now he's written a new book titled Upheaval, Turning Points for National Crisis. Jared Diamond, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, your new book, Upheaval, has already received huge praise, including rave reviews from a couple of former guests of the show, uh, Stephen Pinker, who said, uh, quote, Jared Diamond does it again, another rich, original, and fascinating chapter in the human saga. And another former guest of the show, Michael Shermer, who said, no scientist has ever won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Jared Diamond should be the first. That must feel good. Nay, his wish come true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really, really enjoyed the book, and I'm a big fan of all of your works. Upheaval is interesting. It applies many of the same metrics for how people cope with a personal crisis to how countries handle national crises. And you opened the book by talking about your own personal crisis that you went through during, I think, grad school. What was that? In grad school, in my first year of grad school, after having sailed through high school and college and done very well um, and deciding on entering a career of scientific research. So I went to University of Cambridge, England to get a PhD in physiology. I found things more difficult. The experiments weren't working. I'm not good with my hands. I couldn't build a complicated apparatus. Um, I attended meetings where other people had something to say and I had nothing to say. I was getting demoralized, and by the summer of my first year, I was seriously considering dropping out of science, and instead I was going to go to Switzerland, enter a translator school, and become a simultaneous translator at the UN. Um, it was a painful crisis. It got resolved um, by after I had thrashed over it. My parents happened to be visiting Europe. We talked. For a week must have been agonizing for them to see how undecided I was. And then finally, the decisive moment, we were sitting on a park bench in Paris, and my father said, you've been working on this research project for only a few months. This is a career of scientific research. You were thinking about doing it for the rest of your life. Don't you think perhaps it's early to give up on that goal? Why don't you try, try it for another semester? And if it doesn't work, you can still go to graduate school. You can still go and become a simultaneous translator. But don't you think it's early to pull the plug? And, and Dad was right. Dad was patient. <laughs> I was impatient with myself. I went back, continued the experiments. The experiments worked. I resolved my philosophical doubts about being a scientist, and I've been happy ever since. Even though you didn't become a simultaneous translator... You do speak, I don't know how many languages, right? So in some sense, you kind of followed that's old paths. That's true. At, uh, at one time or another, I've spoken or read 13 languages, although there were only, there were only five of them that I can speak now, yeah. although I can read some of the others. And you started as a professor of physiology, but your career has had many twists and turns over the years. Then you pursued ornithology and ecology, and later in life, you developed a third career in environmental history and geography. And do you find that you have to constantly be pursuing something new and different in order to still feel like you're challenging yourself? No, it's no. It, it, that's an interesting question. It's not that I need to pursue something new and different. It's that I'm interested in 
multiple things, and I've been interested in them for my whole life. Mm -hmm. Geography. Um, I was born in 1937, and so I grew up in World War II with maps of the battle lines um, on the walls of my bedroom. I've always been interested in geography and history. I've been interested in birds since age seven. I, I began a career, a second career in ornithology after I got my Ph.D. in physiology. So I had two careers from early on. And then, particularly after the birth of my twin sons, when I realized that the, their future was not going to depend upon gallbladder physiology, but on bigger <laughs> issues, I gradually switched into geography mm. and history. So it's not that I need something new. I'm happy with geography and history, and I'll do it for the rest of my life. But I'll also do New Guinea birds for the rest of my life. Okay. So you still pursue all these different areas of inquiry alongside each other. Do you find that they overlap or that they sort of inform each other in some cases? Yes, they do in an interesting way. Um, you might not think that New Guinea birds would inform <laughs> how one approaches national crises. Yeah. But in fact, with New Guinea birds, you cannot perform experiments. You cannot go exterminate one bird that's considered not nice in order to see, see the effect on another bird. Uh, instead, to learn things in ecology, you have to look for natural experiments. You have to compare two different situations that naturally are a different way and learn from that not a manipulative experiment, but an experiment that nature gives you. But similarly with nations, huh. if I want to understand uh, why one country becomes rich and another country becomes poor, I can't take away all the money from everybody in Japan and make <laughs> Japan poor and we'll have a controlled experiment. That also is considered not nice and it's not, not feasible. You got to do natural experiments, yeah. take what nature gives you and learn from what nature gives you. So it really is my work on New Guinea birds that has informed my approach to history, the approach of comparisons. Now you suggest that there are a dozen key factors related to outcomes of personal crises that can in many ways also relate to how countries handle national crises. Uh, can you walk us through a few of those? Uh, I can walk you through, but, but you and I and everybody listening to us knows from experience with personal crises. Mm -hmm. Personal crises meaning breakup of a marriage or a relationship or death of a loved one or a setback to your career or to your, to your health. You know that in a personal crisis, you get nowhere until you acknowledge that you're in a crisis. Mm -hmm. If you don't acknowledge you're in a crisis, you're not going to resolve it. Once you acknowledge you're in a crisis, you get nowhere unless you acknowledge that you have some responsibility. You're not the helpless victim, poor me, victimhood. Um, instead, there's something you can do about it. Um, then when you're in a crisis, in a personal crisis, most of us get help from friends, emotional help, sometimes material help. Or we learn from models. We see how other people solve the same problem. When my first marriage broke up, I immediately went out, and within a couple of days, I talked to four friends whose marriages had also broken up. And, and it helped me to realize that I was not the first person to cope with this problem. It also helped me to see how people, some of my friends, had fixed problems in their, in their marriage, with the result that I then made a happy second marriage. But the, the, all of these things are very, very familiar. There are about a dozen factors, whether you're honest with yourself, whether you're patient, et cetera, a dozen factors that make it more or less likely that you'll deal with a personal crisis. 
but nations also, there are a dozen factors that make it more or less likely that a country will deal with a national crisis. And some of those factors, such as whether a country gets help from allies, are suggested by factors affecting personal crises. Now, I know that your wife, Marie, is a clinical psychologist. Did she have a lot to add to your understanding of how people deal with personal crises? It's not that Marie had a lot to add to my understanding. It's that Marie gave me my understanding. (laughs) Because Yes, Marie is a clinical psychologist with a specialty in crisis therapy. That's a branch of psychotherapy in which instead of seeing someone for years and exploring at leisure what happened in their childhood, someone is in a crisis, the therapist has to act fast because in the worst case, the poor person may commit suicide or give up. And so Marie and her fellow therapists each week would gather to talk about the clients and figure out who's making progress in dealing with their crisis and who isn't and who's at risk. And as Marie told me about these dozen outcome predictors for personal crises, I began to realize that I think a dozen similar factors also help understand the outcomes of national crises. So it was Marie's insights that were the starting point for the book. Did you give her an acknowledgement in the book at least? <laughs> oh, did I give her an acknowledgement? I dedicated the book to her okay, well, and she go. got the first acknowledgement. Okay. Well, good. Now, it's easy to make broad judgments about how a country handles a crisis from the outside, but I think with the exception of Japan, All of the countries that you profile in upheaval are places where you've either lived or at least spent a substantial amount of time. Did you feel that your personal connection to these countries gave you a deeper understanding of what was at play on the ground? Absolutely. Uh, um, The countries that I wrote about, they're all countries where I speak the language except for Japan, but the Finnish language. The, the I was of the just going to ask. <laughs> it's notoriously difficult. It is, it? <laughs> yeah. But I picked up enough Finnish to hitchhike around Finland. Okay. But the Finnish language <laughs> is the key to Finland's national identity. Mm-hmm. It's a very complicated language. It's a beautiful language. If you don't understand the Finnish language, you're not going to understand Finland. Similarly, the German language is a distinct, the Indonesian language. Understanding the languages also meant that I can converse with people on their own grounds. I was not a a foreigner. Mm. It meant that I've got friends in all these countries, friends that I've known for up to 50 years. And so I've got my own experience of Finland and Chile, but I've got the experience of my my Finnish friends. Finland is the first country that you discuss in the book. Outsiders use this derisive term called Finlandization to describe the nation's relationship with the Soviet Union, now Russia. You confessed to being a little bit guilty of this yourself during, I think it was one of your earlier first visits to that country. Why do Finns take offense at the term Finlandization, and what is it that non-Finns seem to misunderstand? Sure. Finlandization is a a nasty word. It's a blaming word that non-Finns, particularly Germans and other Europeans and Americans, applied to Finland after World War II. In World War II, Finland got attacked by the Soviet Union, whose population is about 40 times that of Finland. The Finns fought fiercely. Lots of them got killed, but Finland managed to retain its independence. But Finns learned a lesson from the war against Russia, which is, let's make sure we're not going to get into that mess again. And what we'll do is we'll talk constantly with the Russians at every level from the president downwards, so that the Russians are not suspicious of us, so they'll they'll know what we're thinking, 
um, the Russians will know that they're not going to be surprised by we are making an alliance with some other country and attacking Finland by the back door. Um, Finland's learned, learned, and they were very careful not to offend the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. When the Soviet Union invaded Hungary, the Finns kept their mouth shut. Okay, Germans and Americans said, that is, that's a lack of courage. You should speak out against the Soviet invasion of Hungary. And the Finnish res response was, if we speak out, that's going to have no effect on the Soviet Union, but we learned that we cannot offend the Soviet Union because 100,000 of us got killed for making that mistake. That's Finlandization, namely a small country being very careful about a large country. Um, when I first went to Finland, I'm embarrassed to say that, that one of my, my best, best friend in Finland, who was a veteran of the Winter War, I told him, so why are you being so careful about Russia? Because if you get in, into trouble, the United States and Britain and France will protect you. Oh, God. There's nothing worse <laughs> I could say because yeah. the Finns had been deserted by all their allies, and the Finns learned that our survival is going to depend upon ourselves. That's Finlandization. Mm -hmm. It worked for Finland. It's not going to work for the United States. Mm -hmm. So there was a sense that they couldn't afford to be brave and speak out against the Soviet Union as much as others would have liked because they were realistic and they knew that no one else may come to our aid if we do. Why do we want to get 100,000 people killed again mm -hmm. and 80,000 yeah. of our children uh, driven into exile? No, we're, going to be, we're not going to be stupid again. We're mm -hmm. going to be careful. We will talk constantly with the Russians. We'll remain a liberal democracy. We'll remain a rich country investing heavily in education. All that we're going to do differently is we're going to talk constantly with the Russians so that they will trust us. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the United States, after the fall of the Soviet Union, sadly in the 1990s, while the Soviet Union was there in a big threat, the United States was talking constantly with the Soviet Union. But with the fall of the Soviet Union, we began to take Russia less seriously. And that means that the risk of a misunderstanding, a nuclear misunderstanding between the United States and Russia, paradoxically, is bigger today than it was at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. You cite Finland as what you call an outstanding example of acceptance of responsibility and taking an honest, ultra-realistic self-appraisal. Along those lines, you also discuss Germany's efforts to come to grips with its own descent into Nazism and war crimes in the wake of World War II. I'm curious, though, about the nations that lie on the other side of that spectrum, like Japan and Indonesia, that refuse to acknowledge and accept responsibility for horrific crimes against humanity. Uh, one thing that I know is that in terms of personal crises, if you don't own up to your mistakes or you just ignore them, sooner or later you're either going to repeat the same mistakes or they're going to resurface in other destructive ways. Does the same hold true for countries that try to bury their violent past? Yeah, let's, t let's take a comparison, as you mentioned, the comparison between Germany and Japan. In World War II, Germany did horrible things to Poland and Russia and other European countries. In World War II, Japan did horrible things to China and Korea and allied prisoners. Germany and Japan have responded in opposite ways. Germany eventually, took about 20 years, eventually Germany began recognizing the legacies of Nazism making sure that Germans, every German schoolchild knows the bad things that the Nazis did. 
It's taught in German schools. German school children are sent to the remains of concentration camps mm-hmm. where there are detailed explanations of what the Nazis did. German school children are encouraged to visit Israel to hear firsthand from Jews whose relatives got killed. So Germans have acknowledged responsibility. It paid off for Germany because after Germany got divided between East and West Germany, when the opportunity for German reunification came in 1990, if the Russians and Poles had distrusted Germany, there's no way they would have permitted Germany to reunify. But the Russians and Poles saw that the Germans fully acknowledged what they had done and were making sure that it would never happen again. So it paid off. Russians and Poles permitted and Germ and British and French and America permitted Germany to be reunified. The response is opposite in Japan, possibly because of reluctance to apologize in East Asia and Japan and other East Asian countries. The, the Japanese have not acknowledged the horrible things that they did to the Chinese and Koreans. There's widespread denial of the rape of Nanking. There's widespread denial of the Korean slave laborers and the Korean comfort women, with the result that today lots of maybe majority of Chinese and Koreans, it's not just that they hate Japan, it's that they fear Japan because Japan has not acknowledged what it did and they fear that it could happen again. But for Japan, it's, 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 it's dangerous and it's a loss. Germany was able to, re- West Germany was able to regain East Germany. Japan has not been able to regain the Kurile Islands that Russia took away. China and Korea, they're armed to the teeth. China and North Korea both have nuclear weapons. Japan abolished its armed forces. And yet Japan is in territorial disputes with China and Korea about some small islands. Boy, is it dangerous for a a country that does not have an army to be in a dispute (laughs) with a country that has an army and nuclear weapons? Big mistake on the part of the Japanese. (laughs) Yeah, another one that you cite is Indonesia. And you talk about when you visited there a number of times, how there's just no acknowledgement of the violent atrocities that were committed in the wake of the communist revolt there. It's just not spoken of, huh? That's true. I've been working in Indonesia Indonesia since 1979 because New Guinea, where I do my field work, half of New Guinea is part of Indonesia. In 1965, there was an attempted coup d'etat in Indonesia which failed. In response to the coup d'etat, the Indonesian army set out to exterminate, literally to exterminate, the Communist Party, which was the biggest political party in Indonesia. The number of Indonesians killed, the usual estimate is half a million, so maybe it was two million. But since then, there has not been acknowledgement and discussion in Indonesia. In all my time of working in Indonesia, and I spent a couple of years of my life total in Indonesia, only once have I heard any mention of the biggest event in modern Indonesian history. <laughs> and that was only, it was last year when an Indonesian friend of mine finally mentioned the genocide of 1965, but there's silence about it. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Jared Diamond when we come back in just a moment. Zebit believes that everyone deserves access to lifelong, interest-free credit. With Zebit, you have the power to buy what you need and pay over time interest-free. Zebit provides a better zero-interest credit option for all members, no matter your credit score. With Zebit, there's zero cost to join, zero membership fees, and zero late fees. 
Your Zebit account is not determined by your credit score, and your Zebit account doesn't impact your credit score. Zebit has more than 50,000 products in their marketplace, and brand names like Xbox, Sony, Apple, GoPro, and Fitbit, all at competitive prices. From electronics to barbecues, furniture, and more, Zebit has everything you need for when you need it. Zebit has a five-star rating on Trustpilot, and they've earned the trust of hundreds of thousands of customers who shop on Zebit. Now, I had to go on Zebit to check this out for myself because it almost sounded a little too good to be true. But I went on their site, and it's true. Zero interest-free financing, no sign-up fees, no late fees, no credit check. Plus, they have a huge selection of products from iPads and the latest TVs to appliances, clothing, gift cards, and more, and at comparable prices to what you'd pay on Amazon or other sites. I know because I actually compared. Sign up for Zebit today at zebit.com kick and get $2,500 credit to shop the Zebit marketplace at zero interest and zero cost to join. So if you've been saving up for that brand new laptop or that designer purse you've had your eye on, you owe it to yourself to go check out the deals at Zebit. That's zebit, Z-E-B-I-T, dot com slash kick for $2,500 of interest-free credit. One more time, zebit.com slash kick. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. SiriusXM brings the deepest variety of commercial-free music for every genre and for every mood, where you hear the biggest names in talk, entertainment, and comedy, where you get news from every source. Now, I know what you're thinking. Don't you need a car to enjoy SiriusXM? A lot of people think that, but you don't. You can listen outside of the car. And right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just $1. Just go to SiriusXM slash kick to see offer details and to subscribe. For one buck, you can listen to SiriusXM on your phone, at home, and online. So anywhere you are, any time of day, you can hear your favorite songs or discover new ones. Go to Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S-X-M dot com slash kick and get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for one dollar. See offer details, offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. And now, back to the show. Chile's another nation that has come to grips or had to come to grips with its bloody past. You described spending time there in the 60s and how your friends back then were so confident in the stability of their democracy and sure that it was resistant to the violence and authoritarianism seen in neighboring South American countries. Yet, just, I think, six years after that, Augusto Pinochet overthrew a democratically elected president and began a two-decade reign of terror. How did Chile, the supposed exemplar of South American democracy, fall under a dictator's boot so quickly? Well... We Americans are going to get uncomfortable with what I'm going to s- <laughs> oh. say because it's really upsetting. Um, Chile is the most democratic country in Latin America. And when I visited Chile, I, I lived there for a while in 1967, my Chilean friends explaining their country to the American visitor said, we Chileans, we're not like those other Latin American countries. We are a democracy. Our army does not take over the country. We know how to govern ourselves. That was the, we know how to govern ourselves. This was 1967. My Chilean friends didn't foresee 1973, the military coup d'etat, which ushered in 
um, 17 years of sadism and torture unprecedented in the modern world. But the way it happened was that political compromise was breaking down in Chile. The left and the right and the center could not agree. They couldn't compromise. Um, the president elected in Chile in 1970, Salvador Allende, while he was a saintly person and a, a great public health minister, his economic policies and his foreign policies were disastrous. Um, and the result was that that the majority of Chileans wanted to see him go. Um, the army threw him out. Most Chileans thought that the army will be there for for a few months or a year and then step down. The army did not step down. They stayed in power for 17 years. And the Chilean army, just like the Indonesian army, set out to exterminate the Chilean left. But the United States, the biggest problem of the United States today seems to me to be the, the breakdown of political compromise yeah. between left, right, and center, um, and the, the stalemate between executive and legislature and judiciary but break down a political compromise, that was what ended democracy in Chile. I'm afraid that it could end democracy in the United States, not by a military coup, mm -hmm. but by what we're seeing now, namely restrictions on voting and breakdown of the political function. Uh, what makes the deterioration of political compromise the biggest problem that you see in the U.S.? Is it because it infects everything else and impedes our ability to resolve all the other problems that we face? One can argue about whether it's the biggest biggest problem, because the United States has, now, I would say, at least four big problems. Um, it's the one that that I think has the biggest potential for ending democracy in mm -hmm. the United States. Uh, other big problems include inequality, low socioeconomic mobility, low government investment in public purposes. Those things aren't directly going to end American democracy. But a democracy, the essence of a democracy is that people vote. And when the government, when state and local governments are preventing people from voting by preventing them from registering to vote, um, that, that directly ends democracy. One of the problems that you cite is voter registration and not just the requirements for voter registration and the restrictions, but just the fact that we have to register to vote at all. Is it unusual compared to other countries that we have to actually take the effort to register to vote in the U.S.? It's unusual in every first world country that I know. Really? So I, <laughs> I spend lots of time in Italy and Germany. I have my Italian and German friends. And my, my Italian and German friends tell me, three weeks before an election, um, uh, we receive a piece of paper in the mail um, that tells us where and when to vote. And how does the government know about us? Because... We, f we file a tax return. If you file a tax return or you get a driver's license, the government knows about us. And once the government knows about us, it will send us the piece of paper telling us where we have to vote. But in the United States, you file a tax return and you get a driver's license and the government knows about you. But that's not enough. You got to do something special to register to vote. But there are states, Alabama or Mississippi, where the state government um, uh, um, was – controlled by a political party that was not the political party backed by most African-Americans. Mm -hmm. So, so, the, sure. so the, the state um, closed down Department of Motor Vehicle offices in those counties that had an African-American majority. 
there were protests and so there were lawsuits because that meant that African Americans could not get a DMV uh, driver's license and go vote. There were protests and so so the state backed away and said, yes, we will open DMV offices in those counties with a with a African American majority. We'll open them one day a month on Wednesdays when people are working. And they get, okay, <laughs> yeah, that's not interference fair. with the democratic process. Yeah. I'm sure that there are some Americans who object to the comparisons between the U.S. and Chile. There are obvious differences, I suppose, but is it possible that some of the differences actually make a dictatorship more likely in the U.S.? Yeah. A difference is that Americans consider the right to bear arms as sacred, Mm -hmm. and there are lots of Americans who do bear arms privately. Um, In some states, um, I will not give a lecture in um, in Texas, I will not visit the University of Texas because I know that it's really? permitted to carry guns, mm-hmm. carry concealed guns on the University of Texas campus. And there are plenty of – there are people who dislike my books. There are people who are angry at me. It would be imprudent for me to visit the University of Texas Really? Campus. That's yeah. a concern for you? You bet it's a, you bet it's a concern if I know wow. that, that people are walking around with, with concealed guns. So uh, when you ask what are things that are more worrisome in the United States than in Chile, more worrisome in Chile were, um, was that the American military has never intervened in politics, whereas the Chilean military stepped in briefly on a couple of occasions. But more worrisome in the United States is that there are lots of Americans who consider it their God-given right to run around with guns, and they use guns, whereas that was not (laughs) the case in Chile. Any discussion of polarization and the decline of social capital in the U.S. tends to put a lot of the blame on texting, social media, cable news, and all of our gadgets that we can't let go of these days. As if Americans have had all of these things foist upon them and have no personal responsibility. Those are convenient scapegoats, but does technology really deserve all of the blame? Does technology deserve all of the blame? No, of course it doesn't deserve all of the blame. For one thing, we're the ones using the technology, and it's it's we're uh, we're denying our responsibility mm-hmm. if we say I'm a helpless victim to pull out my cell phone 322 times a day. But it's also the case that that. Let me give you a contrast example. In New Guinea, where I do my field work, uh, New Guineans traditionally didn't have non-face-to-face technology. When New Guineans talk with each other, they're sitting at each other, they're looking at each other in the eyes, they're looking at the body language, they're smelling each other. The other person is a human being. Increasingly in the United States, beginning with a telephone, well, beginning with a newspaper, and then beginning with a telephone, and then beginning with radio and television, and now, now cell phones and internet, most interactions in the United States, most personal interactions, are not with another human, but they're with words in a screen. Well, it's, it's easier to be insulting to words on a screen than it is to a sure. person sure. in the face. But in New Guinea, every conversation is face-to-face. And when you see someone three feet from you, you have inhibitions about telling them that he's a jerk and other bad things, things that you would put on your cell phone but you won't, wouldn't do face-to-face. So that's part of it. But you can say, well, for heaven's sakes, Jared, Italians and Japanese also have cell phones. That's true. Good point. So why, <laughs> why, why, aren't, why hasn't political compromise yeah. broken down in, in Italy and Japan as well? And that's a big question. I can think of two reasons. One is that the United States leads the world in technology. Maybe it's that these things came first in the United States they came later in Italy and Japan. It's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. Within some years, Italy and Japan will be as bad as the United States. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that these things that are, are wearing away 
running down personal relationships. They are counteracted by what's called social capital, involvement of people with other people. In Italy and Germany and Japan, when my Italian and German friends move, you move from any city in Germany to any other city, in Ger- and you're always within a day's train journey or a day's car journey. People remain in touch with their childhood friends. Um, also, Germans and Italians and Japanese, they're just more involved with other people than are American. We move bigger different, bigger distances. We lose contact with friends of our childhood. We Americans just more individualistic. We still have a frontier mentality. Uh, I just came back from a month in Italy and in two weeks in Italy. And in two weeks in Italy, um, I had more social life. I had more lunches and dinners than in a year in the United States. Yeah. It's just that Italians and Germans and Japanese and other people spend more time with each other than mm-hmm. do Americans. So that's the other possible explanation. And yet you list Japan as the other country in addition to the U.S. that you say is presently facing a crisis. Among the problems that they're facing, a lot has been made of Japan's shrinking population, even to the extent that Shinzo Abe has set a goal of increasing fertility rates. I don't know how he plans on doing that, but uh, unless he's personally going to take it on. I'm picturing him impregnating (laughs) 50 million. Anyways. But you, you suggest that Japan's population decline might not even be a problem. Why not? Well, if Japan's population, which is now 127 million, if it declined to 200,000 people, that would be a big problem for Japan. But if Japan's population declines from 127 million to 125 million to 117 million, that's a big benefit for Japan because the Japanese view themselves correctly as a resource-poor country. Japan is more dependent on imports of oil and of timber yeah. and of minerals and of, than any other first world country. The fewer Japanese there are, the less you've got to import. Well, Japan ended up in World War II because of this drive to import. And so if there were fewer Japanese, if there were 95 million Japanese instead of 127 million, 127 million Japanese, 95 million Japanese are still going to be a powerful, well-educated industrial country. Um, but they're not going to have the pressure to import. And so Mm. I think the Japanese would be better off with a smaller population. Is the aging of the population in Japan more serious, do you think, than the shrinking of the population? Good good question. The shrinking of the population, I would say, as you and I were just talking, shrinking of the population I see as a benefit, not a loss. The aging of the population well, here I have my private views about it. I'm, I'm 81, and I'm not going to bash <laughs> old people. But yeah. it, it, the, the fact is that if the United States consisted of 99% 81-year-olds like me <laughs> and then 1% babies, that would not be good for the economy because the 81-year-olds, uh, yeah. I'm still— Well, luckily, you're still in very good working shape. So. <laughs> I'm in good working shape, and I'm still yeah. working— I'm working and teaching full-time at UCLA, but most 81-year-olds are not. And in Japan, most 81-year-olds, they're retired. They're drawing on Mm. the Japanese equivalent of Social Security. But because there are more and more old people and fewer fewer young people, and the money for the the American and the Japanese equivalent of Social Security comes from the wages of those young people, it is a problem that we also worry about in the United States, that there are fewer young people and more old people. You have a chapter on global crises— in dealing with global issues such as climate change, it seems to me that it's a lot more complex than one nation working through its own problems. And there's less of a framework in place for collectively addressing these 
big, sometimes existential crises at the macro level, doesn't that stack the deck against humanity? You are right. Unfortunately, it does stack the deck against against humanity. The United States at least has a central government. We complain about how it functions, but we've got a central government that can discuss things. The world, it had the League of Nations. The world has the United Nations. But the United Nations doesn't have remotely the power that does the American government within the United States. And so when I, when I first drafted my next to last chapter of my book, Upheaval, my chapter on the problems of the world, um, if you eventually take a look again at that last chapter and imagine that it stops six pages before where it actually stops, you will see that that chapter, that was my first draft. It stopped six pages early, and it was a pessimistic draft because it seemed to me, as you say, that the world does not have a framework for solving world problems. But fortunately, I kept, kept writing, kept asking, and I learned that, in fact, in the last 40, 50 years, the world has succeeded in solving really difficult problems. We've solved the problem of the overlap in, in, in um, coastal economic zones. Really difficult. Countries with overlapping zones, but nevertheless, that was resolved. Yeah. We've, overla- we've solved the problem of tankers on the high seas. They're now double-hauled rather than single-hauled. We've solved the problem of escaping CFC refrigerated gases into the atmosphere, destroying the ozone layer. We agreed to get CFCs out of, out of the atmosphere. We solved the problem of smallpox. Smallpox has been eradicated. And boy, that was difficult because the last country with smallpox was Somalia. And it is not easy to do anything in Somalia, but, but the world eradicated smallpox in Somalia. Or more recently, the, the agreement um, uh, the, to delineate rights for mining the seabed. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody would mine the seabed if some other ship can anchor 200 yards away and go suck up you are part of the seabed. But an agreement was reached delineating rights on the seabed. So there's this long okay. track, track record of the world solving okay. world problems. We have global organizations below the UN that are handling, you know, at least in these specific areas, whether it's environmental or whether it's uh, economic, uh, we're seeing some success there at least. That's right. We're seeing some success. And the problems we face, so climate change is a difficult problem. But Eliminating smallpox and delineating economic zones was a really difficult problem as well. Since, since we did those other things, either through, through agencies reporting to the UN, through UN-founded agencies, through World Health Organization, mm-hmm. since we solved those really difficult problems, that's why this, my book ends on a cautiously optimistic note rather than a pessimistic note. I estimate the chances as at least 51% that... <laughs> A few decades from now, my sons will have a happy world to live in. (laughs) In the last section, you address the two questions that you get asked most often. Uh, The first one is, do countries require a crisis to act, or do nations ever act in anticipation of problems? Given the nature of politics and government, I'm guessing that the latter is probably considerably rarer, no? You are are correct. Uh, um, Nations respond better to crises sudden crises than they do to slowly trickling crises. But people also respond to crises. It, it really caught my attention when my first wife told me she wanted a divorce. <laughs> Simply a gradually deteriorating relationship did yeah. not get that attention. Yeah. But countries sometimes respond 
in advance of a crisis. They don't wait for the crisis. The prime example is the formation of the European Union. It began to form in the 1950s when European uh, heads of state like Konrad Adenauer said, we're not going to wait for World War III. Mm. World War II was bad enough, thank you. We're going to start now to integrate Europe. Um, we're going to ensure that European armies have a gun whose stock is made in Germany and whose barrel is made in France and whose bullets are made in Italy, trigger, duh, 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 so it will be impossible for European countries to make war with each other. That was an action taken in advance of a crisis. And another example is Finland. So I have a friend in Finland who told me the government of Finland has a, a government agency which meets every month. And that agency discusses what crisis could possibly arise. My friend huh. is my friend is on that agency, and and the month before I, I I I saw him, he said the problem that we discussed last month was what do we do if there's a crash of the electric grid in Finland? It hasn't crashed, but it might crash. So let's figure out what we would do if it did crash. Mm -hmm. Finland and the European Union are examples of countries acting in advance of crises rather than waiting for the crisis to happen. The other question that you get a lot is, do leaders make a difference? I was interested in the answer to that one. I'm perhaps oversimplifying things, but it sounds like bad guys make more of a difference than good guys. That's a step. Okay. Your, your explanation <laughs> is a step in the right direction. Okay. What is the case is that, that dictators, it's not that bad guys make more okay. of an effect than good, but it's that dictators make more of an effect than a democratic leader for mm -hmm. understandable reasons. The dictator has more power. The dictator can do more. And that also explains why democratic leaders in time of war have more effect than democratic leaders in time of peace. Winston Churchill had more effect in World War II than when he came back and was prime minister sure. after World War. Charles de Gaulle had a bigger effect during the Algerian crisis than once the Algerian crisis w was passed. Um, so. It is true that leaders have more effect the more power they have, but that's not surprise. More effect both for the good and for the bad. Mm -hmm. In your 2005 bestseller, Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed, you describe the world as being in the midst of a horse race between a horse of destruction and a horse of hope. You return to that discussion in upheaval. Uh, here we are, I think, 14 years later. Do you have a better sense of which horse is winning at this point, or is that that 51% that you were talking about? <laughs> it's still 51%. Okay. Yeah, so I see the world. I saw it in 2005, and I see it now as being in a horse race between the horse of destruction and the horse of hope. But in the usual horse race, the horses get out of the starting gate, and they run at constant speed for the whole race. Yeah. This is an exponentially accelerating horse race huh. where the horse is going faster and faster and faster, meaning that the the forces leading towards destruction, the growth of world population mm -hmm. and consumption, that's increasing. The forces of hope are increasing. More and more people are recognizing the reality of climate change and that, that it's human responsibility to do something about it. So the horses are they're running neck and neck, but they're running faster and faster. Mm -hmm. so Which horses think can, things could change very abruptly then? They could change. Or more abruptly. They could. They, well, the, Yes, we, we, we are going towards the edge of the cliff faster and faster. <laughs> okay. What's going to happen? I don't know, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic thanks to things such as the, those world problems that the world has dealt with in the last 50 years 
and thanks to the increasing recognition of the reality of climate change, uh, I would say the chances are only only 49% that we'll have a bad ending and chances are at least 51% that we'll have a happy end. But it depends upon the choices that people make. Okay. Could be worse then. (laughs) Well, again, the book is called Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. Jared Diamond, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Jared Diamond for coming on the podcast. Order his terrific book, Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold beginning Tuesday, May 7th. Today's episode was sponsored by SoBob Podcast. What is technology doing to us? How does it affect our ability to work, to be present, to connect to one another? Podcaster Aliyah Tavakolian wonders about these things all the time, and tech journalist Bob Sullivan has spent his life finding the answers. Their new podcast, So Bob, is your opportunity to ask, So Bob, how can I live a better digital life? Follow So Bob on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. Commercial-free music, plus sports, talk, comedy, and news, they have it all. And right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just $1. Go to SiriusXM.com kick to see offer details and subscribe. That's Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S, X-M dot com slash kick. Offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM. No car required. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Gas News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.